In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we have a nice full slate of topics to discuss. Today we are going to be discussing uh, some of the attempts that Trump has done in order to steal the election. Again, because he's still doing that. (laughs) For some reason. Then we're going to spend some time talking about vaccines and uh, discuss how we feel about the concept of mandatory vaccines, if that ends up becoming a conversation. And then we are going to discuss... Trump's refusal to sign the Defense Authorization Act that has recently been passed by Congress. Now, uh, it has been passed by basically a veto-proof majority, so his objections might end up like not mattering in the end. But I think it is still important to, to discuss it and discuss our own feelings on mm-hmm. that particular thing. Yeah, sounds good. Yeah. But... As always, oh, God. we're going to start on a low note so that we can end on a high note, right? Man, that's you really framed that up nicely. <laughs> yeah. So, so how are the COVID numbers? Are terrible. we uh, they're terrible. <laughs> they're horrible. So worldwide, sixty nine point one million people have gotten COVID, which is uh, which is nearly zero point nine percent of the world's population. Um that's up from 64.7 million people last week, which is a 6.8% increase in total cases. So far, 1.57 million people in the world have died from COVID, which is up from 1.5 million last week. So that's about a 4.7% increase in total deaths. In the U.S., things are looking way worse. 15.8 million people have gotten COVID which is 4.8% of the U.S. population, which is fucking insane. Which is, and that's up from 14.3 million last week. So that's a 10.5% increase in cumulative cases. At that rate, um, total cumulative COVID cases will double every seven weeks. Literally, at this rate, every two months, a little less than every two months, it gets twice as bad. In one week, we've had 1.5 million new cases, which is over 200,000 new cases per day. So far, it's killed almost 300,000 Americans. It's killed 296,000 people in the U.S., um, which is up from... 279,000 last week, which is a 17,000 death increase in one week. That's basically a 9-11 every day. Yeah. Like, so how many deaths is that per day approximately? It's it's almost 2,400. Yeah. To put that, again, to Michael's point, to put that into perspective, 2,977 people died on 9-11. Mm-hmm. We are almost at that point where we are having a 9-11 a day. Like when we had, when 9-11 happened, everybody was 
very justifiably in uproar. Mm -hmm. And our response was invade the shit out of the Middle East, invade the wrong country as well, just, you know, for good measure, which was a bad response, but... But it was a, it was a strong response. It was like, a response. It was a huge response. And now we're having that almost every single day, and you still have people calling it the fucking flu. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just, I just want to... I just want to make one quick point before we go into our segments. So if you haven't already listened to the interview that we did with uh, Kyle, uh, Kyle Chaska, the uh, speech language pathologist that we had on last week, please go listen to that. Yeah. But there's one part that I just want to briefly reiterate that he said. So y you might be, you might be asking yourself like, what is a speech language pathologist and why, what does that have to do with COVID? So a speech language pathologist basically teaches people how to talk, like how to use their vocal cords. Um, sometimes it might be to overcome like a speech impediment. Sometimes it might be to help with an accent. Sometimes it might be to help when damage, when damage occurs. Kyle told us about how uh, he has, uh, there, there are patients that have been intubated, meaning basically they've had tubes shoved down their throat because they couldn't breathe because of COVID. They've had tubes shoved down their throat. And sometimes when they shove tubes down your throat, they need to prioritize saving your life, which means they can't worry about being, you know, uh, pristine and coordinated with it. They have to get those tubes down there so you can breathe. So it scratches against your vocal cords and does damage. And he has to spend time teaching them how to talk again. Mm -hmm. That is the reality of COVID. It is not the fucking flu. Yeah. Yeah. And even if it doesn't kill you, you are screwed for a lot for a while. And many people who don't die from COVID have horrible lingering symptoms from both the disease and the treatment. Yeah. And sometimes they might have other things that end up killing them anyway. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he told us the story about someone who, survived covid seemed to be doing fine and then just died of a stroke because of complications from covid yeah that happens too yeah it's it's a really dangerous disease we're not trying to fear monger we're not trying to like make you afraid we're just trying to make it abundantly clear that this is something you need to take seriously this is a serious illness and you there are precautions that you have agency yeah. to take in order to reduce the spread in order to reduce the likelihood of you getting it and potentially other people getting it as well yeah you have agency in this use it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but our commander-in-chief even with all of these news all of this information uh would rather uh focus on pretending like he's fixing the problem of a stolen election rather than fixing the actual problem of uh we're trying to address yeah. the actual problem of COVID. like yeah he's he actually... been focused exclusively on this election bullshit and that's the problem with having a leader who's living in their own narcissistic fantasy world people are he dying and he's out chasing fucking windmills <laughs> he actually said like and i'm not making this up he actually said uh, during a rally recently, which, yeah, he's doing rallies. Yeah. 
uh, it, it was a rally in Georgia. He actually said that I've been working harder in the last few weeks than I have for the last four years. Good and he was specifically referring God. to the work he was doing to try to overturn the election. Like he's admitting that he hasn't done shit. I mean, let alone for COVID for anything in this country, mm-hmm. like his number one priority is making sure that he can overturn democracy. Screw the thousands of people that are dying. Screw the millions of people whose lives are being upended by this virus. All he wants to do is overturn democracy, like the little fascist child that he is. Yeah, and screw the millions of people that voted for Biden instead of him. Yeah. You know, like, (laughs) he just, he, he cares not even a little bit about the American people. He just cares about using, like, like America and patriotism as a tool to further his own narcissistic, childish, power-hungry, fascistic ends. I can't wait to stop talking about him. I know. I'm so psyched. <laughs> like, and the thing is, like, hey, media... And, and I'm talking to all the media right now, mm. if you're listening, because I know that all of the media is a huge fan of sure, the show. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. When Trump is out of office, stop covering him. Yeah, right. Stop covering him. All right. It was justifiable to cover all of the dumb things that he said throughout the last four years because he was president. Mm-hmm. It totally makes sense to cover that, to to report on it, to discuss it. When he is not president anymore, stop covering the stupid things that he says yeah just don't cover it don't give him a microphone don't give him attention just don't yeah all right and 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 like if you think if you're gonna if if like a a media organization is gonna both sides it right and like oh if we're gonna cover democrats we got to cover republicans you can't cover trump because to both sides trump you have to cover him and then you also have to cover you know the people walking in circles, mumbling to themselves with their f- shoes on the wrong feet, like the absolutely <laughs> insane people walking in the park or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's no, the I, that, you know he that's the equivalence. The drunk granddad at the end of the bar, like you got to cover him. Yeah, you got to start covering yeah, exactly. him. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we did want to spend some time talking about Trump's like latest efforts to overturn uh, this election. Um, just because they're getting more and more outlandish, more and more unethical and obviously uh, wrong. And yeah, we, and, and it's one of those things that we just like can't not cover at this point. Yeah. Before we get into debunking it, I actually want to take a second and steel man a little bit. Mm-hmm. So basically the argument at this point is... On election night, everybody could see that the president was ahead in, like, all of the major swing states. You know, on election night, we could all see that. And then, uh, and some of those leads were were really large leads, were, were, you know, leads of, you know, hundreds of thousands of votes. Mm -hmm. And in the days to come, as more votes got counted, as they counted mail-in votes... It shifted to Joe Biden. So first off, a person seeing that without context might be suspicious. Sure. Furthermore, the Trump administration has produced 
several, actually many signed affidavits from poll watchers, uh, from Republican poll watchers that watched the, uh, the vote tallies going on. And they reported things that made them feel suspicious. Mm-hmm. So these are eyewitness accounts. And just looking at that, just looking at things, let, let's look at one example. So there is one example in uh, Michigan. There was one poll watcher that was watching poll workers actually th- that reported that they were watching poll workers uh, by hand fill out ballots that were blank ballots hmm. and, you know, fill out fill it out for the person with the D next to the name for, for every single level. So they allege that in this. Um, and there were other cases in which uh, apparently uh, poll workers, like people that were actually doing the counting, were getting pissed off at poll watchers and yelling at them. And uh, when they would come and try to report things, like the example that I gave, uh, basically they would be ignored. So these are all affidavits alleging, alleging things like this. Um, some of it might be uh, allegation. There was one instance where there was an allegation that um, the ballots were too pristine. So like, you know, there were no folds in the ballot. Like there were, you know, how how could a ballot possibly be in that good condition unless it was it had just been printed? So a person without additional context seeing that might justifiably think, hey, Something's going on here. Mm-hmm. Like, wouldn't you say that that could potentially be reasonable, Mike? Yeah, absolutely. If I saw a bulleted list of just those facts, I would think, hey, there's something going on here. Yeah. I would probably not say, I would probably not think, hey, this must be representative of a larger trend, right? Like, there's yeah. no reason to think that these aren't all of the cases of these things occurring. Like there's no reason to extrapolate that to millions of votes, but I would say, you know, those are definitely suspicious activities and I'd want to figure out what's going on there. Yeah, exactly. Anybody should, because look, we value democracy. Yeah. You know, if, if Donald Trump had won the election, I mean, obviously Michael and I would not be happy about it. Sure. And we would probably even complain about some of the voter suppression tactics that had taken place, but we wouldn't, try to pretend that the election itself should be overturned. Yeah, absolutely. Like we might say that we might fight for laws to change for the next time to make sure that more people are able to vote, but we wouldn't try to like fight for the actual results to be overturned. That would be crazy. Yeah. Um, Truly crazy. Yeah, exactly. So if there were actual instances of voter fraud, we would want those to get discovered. Yeah, absolutely. Like, it doesn't matter if it helps us or hurts us. We want that to get discovered because we believe in democracy. Yeah, absolutely. So let's put some context to the facts that I just gave. Or at least the, the steel man argument that I just gave. So first off, the first one. Election experts had already explained that there was going to be a red mirage. Yeah. All right. Approximately, it was like 60 or 70 percent of Biden voters were planning on voting by mail. And um, it was another like crazy number percentage of, uh, of Trump voters were planning on voting in person. Sure. Like, he actively told that. his supporters, don't yeah. vote by mail, vote in person. He, he actively told his supporters, yeah. So it's obvious that 
once the mail-in ballots are counted, it's going to swing towards Joe Biden. In fact, you actually had an instance in which the case was kind of the opposite yeah. in Florida. Mm-hmm. So in Florida, let's let's remember in Florida, they were actually allowed to count the mail-in ballots first. Yeah. Like they were allowed to start counting the mail-in ballots even before the regular ballots came in. Mm-hmm. And if you had looked at the numbers at the beginning of the night in Florida, Joe Biden had an amazing lead. Yeah. Like had a, you know, almost as much of a, you know, seemingly insurmountable lead as Trump did in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And yet, as they started counting more election day ballots, it swung back to Trump. Yeah. And it stayed with Trump. And Trump ended up winning by a relatively comfortable margin. And so what you'll notice across a lot of these states is if you look at the laws surrounding their their counting timing and when they can start processing these ballots and, and when they started processing mail-in ballots versus election day ballots, it's closely associated with the shift that you saw going on election night versus the days following. Yeah, exactly. And what's funny is in, in a lot of these cases, it was actually Republican state legislatures yeah. that prevented them from counting allow, earlier. Yeah, that prevented them from counting it early. A conspiracy-minded <laughs> person might think they were trying to create the red barrage and trying to <laughs> yeah. make uh, make it seem like the election was illegitimate. But, you know, there's no reason to think that considering their history of voter suppression and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, none at all. None at all. But we, we don't even need that quiver. We don't even need that arrow, arrow in our quiver to make yeah. this point. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so that was already like, we had already been warned about that. Yeah. It, you know, the idea that there were ballot dumps, they weren't, it, it wasn't ballot dumps. It was mail-in ballots either being delivered or being counted. Yeah. Those weren't, those weren't dumps. Those were just mail-in ballots being delivered or counted. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's, that's a completely false narrative. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's address the affidavits. First off, um, Michael, you're a, you're a legalistic. I'm a law person. guy. <laughs> you're a law guy. Uh, can you explain what an affidavit is? An affidavit is a um, a legally binding witness statement. It's basically, it's think of it as you getting up on the stand and swearing on a Bible that you'll tell the truth and nothing but the truth and all that, except it's written down. Yeah. So basically, it's an eyewitness testimony. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. so and and it comes with the penalty of perjury, which is why people take it seriously. Yeah. So this so an affidavit is a form of evidence then. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. However, one thing that's important to note is it's not necessarily proof. No, certainly not. An eyewitness testimony is notoriously not only flawed and questioned in courts, but it very rarely stands alone. Without corroborating yeah. evidence, it's really hard to get anything, um, you know, to win a case on, on just eyewitness testimony. Yeah. So what often happens then is an eyewitness account might get a case going, sure. right? Like might say, hey, I saw this as a problem and it might make people think, oh, well, this person saw this. We should gather more information to uh, see if what they saw is actually what happened or to see if what they're alleging actually is actually what happened. Would, would you say that's correct? Yeah, sure. So that's an important, that's a key thing there. All right. Affidavits are a form of evidence, but they're not necessarily concrete proof. They are eyewitness testimony. Sure. So these sworn affidavits are eyewitness testimony from poll watchers. Yeah. So 
the example that I gave you earlier of the person of the, the poll worker that was, um, or the, the, the poll watcher who was watching poll workers fill in ballots, fill in blank ballots that happened. Sure. I mean, it, that very likely happened. Yeah. However, apparently what's been a common trend that actually some judges have even noted is that the poll watchers don't actually understand the voting pro the vote sure. counting process. Yeah. So in Michigan, where this whole thing took place, you have the option to basically fill out a D for everything. Like you have the option to just be like, to automatically just say, all right, put this down as Democrat for everything. Hmm. Right. Um, now you, some states don't allow you to do like just full party fill outs. You have to manually fill out each one. But in Michigan, you can do that. So interesting. So they have got like, they've got like one checkbox that you fill in and it's like, okay, I want a Democrat down the, down the ballot. Yeah. And the, the, the ballots that they were filling, that they were filling out in this specific case were military ballots. Mm. And what they actually were doing was it was military ballots that were written in. And it's actually standard procedure for write in military ballots to end up being transferred onto a blank ballot sure. by a poll worker, by an election worker. Because the machines worker. can't read write-ins. Yeah, because the, the machines can't read the write-ins. Exactly. So this was actually just standard procedure. Yeah. Now, again, if you didn't understand that, if you didn't know that, you might see this and think, oh my God, this, like these poll workers are just filling out ballots willy-nilly. Sure. But, but that's part of the process. And that's actually been a common trend for a lot of the affidavits in court. Yeah. The reason why the Trump administration keeps losing case after case after case after case, I think the number's like 45 yeah, at this point. Yeah, it's so high. The reason why they keep losing is because when the affidavits are vetted, when, when the, the claims are examined, mm -hmm. either they determine that the witness was not credible or they investigate it and discover that there's no evidence to substantiate their claim or, and this is another big one. And this has actually been one of the more common ones. The judge realizes that what is being alleged is just part of the counting process. Yeah. And the, the poll watcher doesn't understand how the counting process works yep. because yeah. maybe they weren't properly trained. Maybe they weren't properly uh, they weren't properly informed in what the counting process was. And another important point to bring up for this is, you know, earlier I mentioned that there were affidavits that alleged that there were poll workers, you know, counters that were yelling and screaming at poll watchers. There's actually sworn affidavits from Democratic poll watchers that are saying that Republican poll watchers were actually actively trying to intimidate people that were counting the mm. counting the ballots like it's actively disgusting. you know trying to um stand really close behind them and breathe down their neck and mm -hmm. question absolutely every single thing that they did in a frivolous manner and again those are sworn affidavits the exact same level of evidence that these other affidavits claiming that poll watchers were not treated fairly it's the same type of evidence yeah. and it should be taken, you know, with a similar level, level 
yeah. of both skepticism, but also level of, uh, of seriousness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's the thing. Like there are lots of processes that are outside of the standard, um, you know, dump in a bunch of ballots, they run through the scanner perfectly and the votes get counted. Right. Like yeah. if you've got a, if you've got a ballot with erroneous marks, it can sometimes disrupt the scanner. And so those will get transferred over to a new ballot as well. You'll have an other. Yeah. So like, and, and that's, that's the thing, like so many of these affidavits are either not about, like they're not actual evidence of what they're claiming to be evidence for, like in that case, or they're just not actual evidence at all. Like in the case of the Georgia election or, um, poll watcher who left the room and then came back and, and the ballots that they had, they had seen on a table were gone. And so they assumed that they had been thrown away and like, that's not, that's not evidence of anything. You weren't there to see anything there was no evidence. Um, and so, and so it's, that's the thing. Like, it seems pretty clear to me at this point that this is not a legal battle. This is yeah. a battle for the court of public opinion. Yeah. And so it's a battle for like, uh, to rile up p people that, that, that aren't going to look into these details or that take Trump like, you know, seriously at his word all the time, just like, just to, to litify Trump's base. Yeah. And I mean, interesting so, that, that these things are only being, uh, only being discovered in swing states. Like you'd think if there were widespread yeah. voter fraud and uh, even election rigging, which they've alleged, you know, they'd find it in some states that he didn't lose by, by <laughs> these <Yeah>. margins. <laughs> that is, that is quite interesting, isn't suspicious. it? suspicious. Um, and, and look, you know, the big thing that you should focus on when it comes to determining whether or not a, uh, a challenge is legitimate is what the judges rule. Yes. So in these cases, like the evidence from the affidavits are being presented to these judges and the judges are determining they're just, the evidence is just not there. You, yeah. you don't have evidence or you misunderstood the law or you didn't know what the law was or you're not a credible witness. Mm -hmm. So the fact that, all of these judges, many of which are conservative judges, by the way, it's mm -hmm. not just liberal judges that are, that oh, are throwing absolutely. these cases out. Yeah. It's liberal and conservative judges. The fact that they are looking through these affidavits, like, and, and again, you know, Rudy Giuliani can say all he wants. Oh, we have all these thousands of affidavits. Look at the affidavits. Look at the affidavits. Mm -hmm. Well, judges have been looking at the affidavits and they've determined, yeah, this is bullshit. Yeah. So that's one of the big things that you should you should focus on. And look, if there was actual evidence of widespread voter fraud, we would want that to be looked at. But there's never been evidence of widespread voter fraud even before this election. So far, you have our own election experts telling us that this was one of the most secure elections that we've ever had. Yeah. The evidence is just not there. Yeah. What happened was, and this might blow some of your minds, Trump lost. Yeah. He got less votes in the key swing states and also in the nation as a whole. Mm -hmm. He got less votes. He lost. Yeah. Yeah. The last point I want to make kind of on this subject is 
again, these lawsuits cannot deliver in any reasonable way the remedy that Trump and his lawyers are seeking. It is unanchored to the law. Like in many of these cases, they're seeking for the election results not to be certified at all, or they're seeking for all mail-in ballots to be thrown out, or they're seeking for the state to appoint electors that uh, will be favorable to Trump's interest rather than the electors that will be chosen by the majority vote. These are things that are extremely outsized compared to the even even the claims that are being alleged. You know, like like they're they're claiming that a few hundred votes you know, were fraudulent, not enough to turn the election. But then upon that basis, they're trying to claim that every, you know, mail-in ballot should be thrown out, which is, which is crazy. That's like, that's like saying that, you know, the remedy for scratching someone's car should be them owning your house. It's just, it's not a remedy that the law could ever, ever provide in these cases. And Again, it is just Trump trying to tell us all that he didn't lose. But to Nathan's point, he just did. Yeah. And one of the last things that has been, like one of the last ditch attempts is there's a, there's a lawsuit from Texas right now, mm-hmm. which apparently a bunch of other states as well as Trump has latched on to. And the attempt is to basically sue the swing states uh, specifically the four swing states that um, got that won Biden the election, uh, mm-hmm. Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Georgia, to sue those states for having changed election laws to make it easier for people to vote. Yeah. Like, basically, that's his argument. Mm-hmm. It's, it was unconstitutional for them to change their election laws to make it easier for people to vote because of the, the pandemic. So the idea is they want all of the, uh, they want all of the, I guess, all the mail-in votes to be thrown out. Mm. And they're, they're trying to get this all the way to the Supreme Court, which, by, by the way, their initial argument is just so stupid. And I've been really disappointed by some people that I, I truly do respect that are trying to hold that up as a, oh, you know, way to go, Texas. They're still fighting the good fight. Yeah. It's like, no, they're not. No, they're not. Like, whether you, again, whether you agree with Trump or not, whether you voted for him or not, they're trying to overturn democracy. Yeah. That is not okay. Yeah. And, and one thing that gives me some hope about this, one of the very few things that gives me hope, is that recently a lawsuit in Pennsylvania was thrown out by the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Like, they refused to even hear it. Yeah. Um, with one sentence, the application for injunction relief presented to Justice Alito and by him referred to the court is denied. Yeah. And the injunction was basically to say, uh, either we need to throw out all of the mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania or we need to allow the Republican state legislature to choose where the elector- who the electoral votes go towards yeah and the thing about the thing that's really significant about this is that this was a unanimous decision mm-hmm. by the supreme court yeah there's a super majority of conservatives in the supreme court three of which were appointed by donald trump himself and they were like no this is like we're not going to hear this case this is garbage yeah so that gives me hope that uh this whole Texas lawsuit is just another sad attempt 
that's going to be frivolous. But, but the big point that I want people to focus on is like, don't sit there thinking, well, it's okay what they do because it's going to fail anyway. Mm, It is, but don't be thinking that because they're showing you who they are. Mm -hmm. Not just Donald Trump, but the Republican party in general, I believe that it was, uh, it was either the New York times, or the Washington post basically did a survey of elected Republicans in Congress and found that it was like only a quarter of them acknowledged the fact that Joe Biden won the election. Mm. Like they're showing you who they are. Now I hesitated to use this analogy like earlier in this election challenge, because I thought it was an extreme analogy, but I'm going to go ahead and use it. So white supremacist groups, specifically neo-Nazi groups, very frequently argue in court that um, they're allowed to say what they say because of the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And, that's, and that's true. They are allowed to say what they say because yeah, of the First absolutely. Amendment. But they frequently use the First Amendment as grounds to defend uh, lawsuits against them, um, you know, attempts to not allow them to protest. They frequently use the First Amendment to defend uh, in defense against what they're able to do. But when you actually talk to them or when you actually interview them, when you look at interviews of them, you find that they don't actually believe in the first amendment Sure, because they're fascists. Yeah. Like they're, they're neo-Nazis. They don't believe in the first amendment. They don't believe in freedom of speech. So they're using an institution or at least a policy, a law, a system of government in order to try to tear that very same system of government down. Yeah. And honestly, that's what the Republican Party is doing right now with democracy. I'm not necessarily saying that Republicans are neo-Nazis. Sure. But they're definitely fascistic at this point. Like, if you are straight up trying to overturn a democratic election, that's, fa- that's fascistic. So they're using... They're trying to, so when they get elected, when they're trying to get elected, when they're trying to win elections, you need to realize that in democratic elections, they're using a system that they truly do not believe in. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I mean, you you just, you you can't give it to them. Yeah. 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 You can't risk giving them more power more influence because our system worked this time. The checks and balances worked this time. And that's awesome, especially considering that Trump has appointed, you know, I think more than a third of the federal judiciary at this point. But with more time and more power, there's no guarantee that our system will continue to work. Okay, so now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments. Um, a good actually this week. So Nathan, what's our what's our uh, what's our good actually? Our good actually this week is what I like to refer to as the fart heard around the world. <laughs> yes, I am referring to former New York Mayor Rudolph Giuliani. Now, some of you might be thinking, seriously, Nathan? Seriously, Michael? Your good actually is the fact that a grown man farted. In court. And then the video yep. went viral. <laughs> <laughs> yup. Yeah. It is. We are that immature. This is probably the first time we talked about farts on this show. You're welcome Which to is, that. 
<laughs> now, 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 we should caveat before we get too deep into this that news recently came out that uh, Mr. Rudolph Giuliani does have COVID. Um, yeah. And we want him to recover. We don't want him, like, we don't want anybody to have COVID. So we don't want him to have COVID. We don't want him to pass away or get particularly ill. We, yeah. we hope that he recovers very quickly. Um, yeah. And with no more loss of gas. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All, yeah. You know, life is valuable, even Rudy's. And we do, we wish him a, a speedy recovery. Yeah. That being said, he's a piece of shit. And. <laughs> Too soon, too soon. <laughs> so yeah, so so it's not just that he farted to, for for the <laughs> for those who may be listening. So he was in front. <laughs> so he was in front of a Michigan House Oversight Committee, um, arguing on behalf of Trump and next to um, his fellow attorney uh, Jenna Ellis, um, who is ar- also uh, a tested positive for covid which yeah, again not, we wish her a speedy recovery as well yeah and not super surprising considering you know air particles and all that uh, <laughs> <laughs> can you can you get covid from farts i mean in new york city they test the sewage for evidence of really COVID, so i'm sure that you can get covid from farts oh, wow yeah the silent but deadly that takes on a oh, whole new god. meaning <laughs> oh god it's terrible um so anyway he's he's in in this hearing, this public hearing, like arguing with one of the uh, committee members about voter fraud, and he just lets out this audible <laughs> fart that you can hear on the microphones, yeah. and you can see uh, Jenna Ellis beside him, like recoil, like, in this <laughs> with this like disgusted face, like, <laughs> and then he does it again a few minutes later, <laughs> which is like. Sad, sure. It's beautiful. It's <laughs> but beautiful. Holy crap! It's be- it. It's just not quite holy crap. You're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> holy fart. Uh. <laughs> no, and and look, look. Yes, this is a good actually because right now things in the world are kind of like they kind of suck. Yeah, and he's and, actively making them worse. And he's actively making them worse. So if we can derive some pleasure from him farting in court. I mean, look, people fart. I sure. fart all the time. Sure. You know, I've Maybe farted like court. three times since we, I've farted like three times since we started recording this pod. Wow. Not um, even audibly. I'm going to have to cut that out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so like it's, you know, it, it happens, but it is funny and it's okay to just take a minute and just laugh. Yeah. Just laugh at how silly it is. And also yeah. laugh at, you know, the, the poetic justice of so much shit was coming out of his mouth that some had to escape out of his ass. <laughs> I just, I just, I find it amazing that he has worked to support an administration that has made air quality worse. And he personally has contributed <laughs> to that effort. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I hear that, that methane is a contributor to climate change as sure. well. So. so thanks Rudy. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I think he just tore. It. He let a rip, and he ripped a he ripped a hole in the ozone there while he did it. <laughs> oh man. Okay, I think we have probably done this to death. It is a good actually because it's awesome, <laughs> and that's good actually. 
Okay, so as the world is melting on the COVID front and on the Democratic front, there appears to be at least a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Um, so a couple companies are getting really close to the finish line on a vaccine, and Pfizer, um, in collaboration with BioNTech, I guess that's how you pronounce it, which is a German um, uh, biotech company, uh, has made it through phase three clinical trials and has um, started vaccinating um, people in the UK, which is the first set of Western vaccines that have been um, that have that have started, and they've um, applied for an emergency use authorization for their vaccine um, from the FDA, uh, which mm -hmm. is very cool news. Um, yes, the FDA's it review so news. far has been positive. I don't think they've given like formal approval yet, but the advisory committee, um, which is responsible for reviewing and advising the FDA on vaccines, which is called the Vaccines and Related Biological Products Advisory Committee, um, sees, like thinks that there's no significant reason why this vaccine shouldn't go forward. Um, it's also super effective. So it's a two-dose yeah. vaccine. The first dose has about 82% effectiveness. And then when you get the second dose, it jumps up to like 95% effective. Um, and that effectiveness ranges across age, racial, and ethnic minorities, people with underlying conditions. Um, and the side effects have been almost non-existent. I think there were, yeah. there were four cases where people... Um, had like Bell's palsy after um, getting the disease, which is where you have some weakness in the facial muscles um, that causes your face to like slag or, uh, you know, um, relax a little bit. Um, and no one in the placebo group got Bell's palsy, but there's actually no like reason to think that they would be connected. And there's no evidence that they would, that like it's connected to the vaccine. Um, yeah. And even so, like this has been a trial of, thousands and thousands of people and to have yeah. a relatively minor um, side effect like that is yeah. is pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely wonderful news, especially given the fact that we are almost to the 300,000 death mark yeah. in the United States. Um, there's a little bit of unfortunate news on this front, which a lot of uh, leftists have been criticizing the Trump administration for, which I, I want to go ahead and bring up this critique and then kind of say why I'm not sure if it's quite the smoking gun that people think it is. Mm -hmm. So as it turns out, earlier in the summer, uh, a Pfizer had apparently offered to uh, like sign a contract. So the contract was for uh, 100 million doses. And as Michael had pointed out, it's, two, it's a uh, two-dose inoculation, which means that 100 million doses can inoculate 50 million people. Um, as it stands, we already are on contract to receive a hundred million doses and we were going, there was an offer for another hundred million, but the Trump administration apparently rejected that offer and they had been presented that offer several times and they rejected it. And unfortunately, because of this, there are like Pfizer basically took that offer to a bunch of other countries. So we might actually have a little bit of a delay in the Pfizer vaccines specifically because of that decision by the Trump administration. Now, a lot of people are looking that at that as a smoking gun. And one, one thing that I will say is that, you know, Trump's already trying to take credit for the vaccine and that's stupid. Mm -hmm. Like 
his press secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, argued that, oh, this is the Trump vaccine. <laughs> when they actually didn't receive any Operation Warp Speed funding, like the Trump administration had nothing to do with the development of this vaccine. Um, but at the same time, the reason why I don't think that that's necessarily a huge smoking gun is because the reasoning for it was that at the time we didn't know that that was going to be the vaccine that ended up sure like being the real the one that uh that really works that um has the most you know that that is the most effective yeah um so the idea was well we don't want to go ahead and be on contract to buy hundreds of mil like a hundred million doses another hundred million doses of of uh, a vaccine that we don't yet have the evidence for mm -hmm. so that actually and not only that they also wanted to make sure that they were able to buy vaccines from from other providers so sure. remember there's also the moderna vaccine which is, has a similar uh rate of uh being effective as the the pfizer vaccine um you know so the idea is there are options that we are going to look at for uh, who to buy the vaccine from, and we're not going to put all of our eggs in one basket. Yeah, which makes sense. So, so yeah, that that makes sense. So I, I don't I don't think that, like, I mean, yes, it does suck, and yes, it turns out it was the wrong decision. But I, of all the bad decisions the Trump administration <laughs> has made during COVID nineteen, I I wouldn't call that one a huge smoking gun. Yeah, my only my only thing on the first point is, almost certainly in these contracts it is contingent on approval by the FDA. There's like no yeah. way you would sign up to buy a hundred million vaccines that might not work. So you're certainly going to include some now, now I'm taking that just on logic. I, I don't actually yeah. like, I haven't like read these contracts, but, but I would assume. Yeah. And if, if they don't include it by standard, I don't know why you couldn't include it, you know, assume that it is contingent on approval by the FDA, in which case you're pretty, yeah. it seems like you're pretty safe. Like, yeah. Have signing a contract with, you know, Billy in his garage making moonshine to fight the coronavirus. Well, well, but, but, yeah. <laughs> but then again, like if you, you know, if you buy, um, like if you buy 200 sure. million doses from Pfizer and then you have another contract yeah. for like another 200 million doses from Moderna, yeah. then, I mean, you don't want to necessarily buy more doses than you need. Totally. I mean, I guess at, at that point you wouldn't have, um, but there was there was one offer where it was not just for another 100 million. It was actually for five times mm. the original contract. So it would have been 500 million. Yeah. And the idea is you don't want to pre buy a bunch of vaccines that you're not going to end up using. Totally. Yeah. So and, I think that was the logic. Yeah. There. And, and I mean, whether, it, it makes sense to diversify too. like whether it works or not is not the only factor. There's also distribution challenges yeah. like some vaccines are more or less easy to distribute that and can be, you know, held at different temperatures and all these things. So so there's definitely a reason to diversify, especially yeah. when you're seeing multiple vaccine candidates coming down the pipe that are looking promising. Um, and, and especially when they leverage some of the same underlying new research that's gone into vaccines, which has made it possible for these to be developed using a new vaccine technology so quickly, um, which both the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines are based on. So... Um, yeah, I, I would honestly say like we can if we want to blame them later, we can. But let's wait until we don't get like until we have uh, insufficient amounts of vaccines to, to make yeah. that claim. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah. So this also brings up another important conversation that uh, Michael and I wanted to have with each other. We actually specifically didn't talk to each other about what our own personal views are on this mm-hmm. uh, so that we could have that conversation over the pod. Yeah. Uh, and that is the question of whether or not there should be a vaccine mandate yeah. and also generally how we feel about vaccine mandates. Yeah. Now I know my thoughts on it, but Michael, I want to hear your thoughts first. What are, what are your thoughts when it comes to vaccine mandates like sure. in general, but also specifically for this? Yeah. So first let me lay out a couple things like, so experts estimate that it would take about 70% of the U S population being inoculated, um, to reach herd immunity. And a recent poll came out um, that found that 47% of U.S. adults say that they would get the vaccine, 27% said they were unsure, and 26% said that they wouldn't get it, which puts us at just a razor-thin margin. We basically have to go and get everybody that's unsure about the vaccine to get, you know, to be inoculated in order to reach herd immunity. So the consequences of not being inoculated are really, really severe. Um, and, and this, and, and so with that said, like, you know, not, not reaching herd immunity is a huge problem, right? Like you, you can't, you can't beat the virus without herd immunity. You can fight it. You can keep fighting it. You can keep getting inoculating new people, and the people that get vaccinated can, you know, be protected from the disease. But herd immunity is when you start to beat it back, when you take back the ground that it's taken. Um, at that point, like you're starting to see it, it die out and and occur in in much lower and dwindling numbers. So herd immunity is pretty much critical. And so that leads us to I want to like lay out kind of some of the the arguments because you have on the one hand people argue for. I, I am not going to take, by the way, uh, consider like anti-vax arguments seriously yeah. because they're not actually not important because that side of the argument is actually just like an individual like liberty argument and ability to control your own um, uh, like your own body and medical treatment. So that's on one side, right? Like people that contend that it's your body and you should be able to do whatever you want with it. On the other side of the argument is public health and public policy. And basically the idea that public health is a commons, you know, and, and, and our health as a country, when it comes to disease, like you don't exist in isolation unless you literally are isolated, right? So like every person that you interact with, if you're infected is someone that you could have potentially infected. And so it's almost like it's almost like breaking the speed limit, right? Like every, when you drive way too fast and endanger other people, it's not just about your life. Um, and so there is a public element to your private health in when it comes to vaccines. And so that's kind of the gray, murky area, which makes this a pretty challenging question for some people. Um, and personally, like I... And I think Nathan and I both are pretty strong, like civil libertarians in a lot of ways. Like we want people yeah. to uh, be able to do what they want. We want them to act yeah. individually, and and when it doesn't harm other people, like act freely. Yeah. 
the freedom to be stupid is one of the most valuable freedoms <laughs> in 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 my in my mind. Yeah, like yeah. that should that should be like that should be one of the First Amendment freedoms. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, freedom of stupidity. <laughs> we want people to be autonomous, um, yeah. and so that makes it like a much more complicated question for me because I I tend to try to default to that. Yeah. To me, it comes down, it, like, a helpful layer of nuance, I think, is what the actual enforcement mechanism might be on a vaccine mandate, right? Like, like, and, and, and like, what kinds of vaccine mandates there could exist. Like, in the most extreme case, you could have a federal national vaccine mandate. And the enforcement mechanism would almost certainly be something like a misdemeanor with a fine, Maybe a hefty yeah. fine. Yeah. But ultimately, I would not be in favor of like putting someone in prison for not getting a vaccine, um, partially because that would be self-defeating. You're going to yeah. have them not have vaccines. So you're going to group them with a bunch of other people. And partially yeah. because I think that would just be a little bit, I mean, that would be too extreme. That would be an extreme reduction in someone's liberty um, uh as a consequence for for making this choice. So ultimately, I think like having something like a misdemeanor accompanied by a hefty fine so that the choice you're making is spend a lot of money and have a and have like a misdemeanor charge or get the vaccine. Putting like giving someone a really strong incentive to go get the vaccine. Um and another type of vaccine mandate which I'm totally for is is more um is more granular ones right like like it's required to have certain vaccines to go to college if you're going to live in a dorm you got to have a certain vaccines i am totally down for that totally down for vaccines required to go to school and like if you're in public school like participating in 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 public you should be required yeah. to have a vaccine employers requiring vaccines to work in the office i think that is totally reasonable like again you it it should be it makes sense to me that it is a it is a low bar for you to participate in the public activities of society um it basically if you're going to participate in the commons you have to protect the commons that seems like a reasonable argument to me yeah I, I would I would say I'm, we're probably on the same page. Uh, wow, what a I, surprise! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that never happened. Yeah. Um. So I guess going back to the idea of civil liberties, civil civil libertarianism, um, for me, the default assumption is always like when it comes to anything anything that's a social issue, the default assumption for me should always be like, it's a right. Yeah, it's a it's it's a freedom you have to yeah. which, the which burden to me of proof means, is on the restriction. Exactly. Like whenever there is a restriction on a person's personal freedom, the burden of proof should always, always, always yeah. be on the government or you know whoever's making the argument for that restriction. Um, and from a purely libertarian ideology, like my whole philosophy for this can basically be summed up with one analogy, which is you have the right to swing your fist all you want, <laughs> but that freedom stops the second that it touches my face. Yeah. So when your actions harm other people, 
Yeah. You know, in, in a, in a physical manner, that's where your freedom ends. Mm. So if we're talking about like a tetanus shot, you know, tetanus is a horrific disease and you know, a not communicable. You don't, don't mess around with tetanus, yeah. but it's not communicable. It's not like you get tetanus. Now everybody else in the room that you're in is also at risk of tetanus. It's a non-communicable disease. So if we want to say that like that should not be mandated, I'm fine with that. I'm mm-hmm. fine with saying that tetanus shouldn't be mandated for adults. Like mm-hmm. if we're talking about minors, if we're talking about minors, then yes, I think that there should be mandates. Like, because again, it's about, you know, parents having responsibility to protect their kids. And I would actually say that not vaccinating their kids could constitute a form of mm-hmm. abuse. Yeah. It, for some, for, for certain diseases that are deadly or can create like lasting uh, impacts on the, on the, the child's life. Yeah. So, but if we're talking about adults and we're talking about non-communicable diseases, I'm 100% against a vaccine mandate because the role of the government should not be to protect you from yourself. Mm-hmm. However, what the role of the government should be, and you know, ask most libertarians, they will say that on a philosophical level, they agree with this. The point of the government is to protect you from other people. Mm-hmm. So if we're talking about a communicable disease like COVID, it absolutely makes sense to mandate it yeah. because it's something that if you are not vaccinated, it doesn't just affect you. It affects those around you as well. And again, if enough people do not get the disease to where we don't get herd immunity, suddenly the vaccine starts becoming less and less and less effective. And not only that, but there are other people that might not be able to get the vaccine because of some type of allergic reaction to it. Which, by the way, that's another thing. Yeah, just that's a huge to, and very, very important caveat. There has to be an exception mechanism where yeah. someone can, uh, yeah, for, for a, medical reasons. a medical reason, not get yeah. it. Just, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Religion and, and should the, not be a reason that you should be exempt. Just, yeah. just saying no. that straight no. up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Religion is not a reason why you should be exempt. Uh, medical reasons are. And, yeah. and a huge part of that is the fact that part of having a vaccine mandate is to protect those people that they cannot get, get vaccines yeah. because of a medical reason. Mm-hmm. So again, if we are talking about communicable diseases then that are like, that have the ability to, uh, that have a, a good chance of killing you or at least creating lasting negative effects. Like I'm not, I'm not going to argue that the common flu should be a mandatory vaccine. Like I'm not going to yeah. make that argument, but if we're talking about a communicable disease that, uh, has a relatively high mortality rate and even, you know, without the mortality rate can create lasting impacts on a person's life, then absolutely it should be mandated. Mm. And I would agree with Michael that we shouldn't necessarily be locking people up for it because, you know, as he made, the, the, as, you know, going off the point he made, that's kind of counterintuitive. Yeah, definitely self-defeating. Um, but I do think that, you know, it makes sense to potentially have fines attached to it. Um, I've also seen an argument um, where you would have, it, it, the vaccine mandate would be part of a stimulus bill. Mm-hmm. And people getting their stimulus checks would be contingent on them vaccinating. 
which I think that might also be an interesting, that's a pretty cool. Uh, that, that, solution. That's kind also puts an interesting the incentive on the possibility. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's instead of negative reinforcement, it's positive reinforcement. So yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I like the idea of that as well. Uh, if it, if that, it did end up being effective, then I would, I would say like, you know, maybe we don't need to do a fine and look, the last thing that we want to do is make a law that affects people's civil liberties. Mm-hmm. Like, and if there's anything we can do that can, pre- that will, would prevent that, then we should, we should absolutely take the steps in order to prevent that. And, and if that means positive reinforcement instead of negative reinforcement, if it is effective, yeah. if it does end up getting us herd immunity and ending this pandemic, then I think it's worth trying. Yeah. But regardless though, on principle, and you know, in in practice, I think it absolutely, absolutely makes sense to have a mandate attached to this particular vaccine. Yeah, I would like to definitely clarify it. <clears throat> I think in this in this case, it's so clear that yeah. this we have to do whatever it takes to get to herd immunity. Yeah, like I just think that in this case, it is an unequivocal. I think requirement at this point that as many people as can get it, get it, get the vaccine that is. Um, So yeah, I think in general, I would want a vaccine mandate to be specific to the disease as you like clearly laid out is like, it's about the rate. It's about um, the risk of the disease to the populace. Um, yeah, I think that makes that makes yeah. total sense. If you're an adult and the disease is non-communicable, then I mean, look, give yourself tetanus for all I care. Yeah. That's your like that's your business. That's your I horrible mean, horrible demise. Yeah, tetanus is God. Tetanus is terrible. It's terrifying. Like, don't don't fuck around with yeah. tetanus. Yeah. <laughs> um, but like, but look, it's non-communicable. Yeah. So if if that is a decision that you make, then that's your decision. You know. But as soon as it's communicable and deadly, then it no longer is a decision that only affects you. And COVID absolutely falls under that that criteria. Yeah. And of course, we want vaccines to be safe and effective. That's the whole goal. And it would be sadistic for a government to require everybody to get a vaccine that wasn't safe and effective. But there's really no reason to believe that we don't have the proper mechanisms in place to ensure that. Yeah. If there were, you know, we should, we should not take that laying down, but there's really, at this point, we have controls in place. We have professionals and scientists reviewing this information. Um, and we have like really effective testing procedures. So I think there's no reason to think that we shouldn't all get inoculated. So this week, instead of an asset, we are coming to you with a D-Bag Award, which is, of course, short for Dershowitz Bag, because of the famous argument that Alan Dershowitz made as part of Trump's impeachment proceedings, saying that any action that the president takes in, in favor of the country um, is an action that you shouldn't impeach him for, and by trying to uh, get himself reelected by getting a... Uh, foreign power to intervene in our election he was doing what he thought would be the best interest of the country and so you can't impeach him for it (laughs) (laughs) oh man that's a good one so that gave rise to the d-bag award and today we've got a doozy so nathan who's our d-bag today 
Uh, our D-bag today is... I feel like he's he's had to have been our asshat in the past. Like, there's no way we haven't made this guy an asshat I don't know. Before. He might make it to, like, Trump-level immunity at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Sean Hannity! Oh, yeah. All right. Sean Hannity. So what does Sean Hannity do to get uh, to be a, a, a D-bag? I mean, well, a Dershowitz bag. <laughs> <laughs> so, again... The idea behind the Dershowitz Bag Award is an argument that is so unbelievably stupid, it's self-defeating, and it slaps you. It's like basically you slapping yourself in the face. Mm-hmm. Um, and Sean Hannity did just that. So we all we all have talked about on this show about how Fox News is a completely unreliable source of information, especially their opinion commentators are completely full of it. Mm-hmm. And... You know, we talk about that a lot on the show, how they don't really present information. They don't really look at their information before they present it. We've talked about that on our show, but it was actually very surprised <laughs> to see Sean Hannity talk about that on his show. <laughs> Especially as a point of pride. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, uh, so he was trying to make the point that he was just so independent that nobody tells him what to say. And he accidentally said the quiet part out loud. He said, quote, this show, we in this hour, I am not told what to say. I don't vet the information on this program that I give out. We have always been independent, follow our own path on the show. That's not going to change for me ever. Hmm. I don't vet the information on this program that I give out. I feel like Freud oh, would have something to God. say. About that. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh my God. So, and, and the thing is, it, it's not over at this point. The self defeating yeah. is not over at this point. Yeah, at yet. this point, he's just, he's just said, you know, the thing that enables him to both lie and sleep at night, which is that he doesn't yeah. fit the information. Yeah. But later, and, and this was like, this was just out of nowhere on an interview with uh, Kaylee McEnany, he just randomly said, uh, quote, when I said I don't vet this program, uh, I vet the program. We, 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 we vet the facts. We, we got Obama right. We got Russia right. We got Ukraine right. We vetted Biden when no one else would in the uh, Biden family thing. We vet what we do. We're, we're not told what to do. They get everything wrong every single time. <laughs> so first off what about obama did you get right yeah <laughs> um i mean okay you you might be able to argue that with russia you you know you were right that there wasn't collusion or at least it wasn't proven that there was collusion you got ukraine right what did what about ukraine did you get right i guess when you he wasn't biden? impeached <laughs> you vetted biden what it on the the hunter biden thing the thing that was basically universally debunked congratulations you you weren't on the sink on the ship that sank like and what's what's hilarious about this is you know what happened behind the scenes was his like a producer heard him say we don't vet information and was like no you (laughs) idiot why would you say that oh my god you idiot and then, like, either through his earpiece or I don't know if there was, like, a, a break, a commercial break in between when he said that and when he did this interview, um, but told him, you got to 
You gotta correct that. You gotta correct what you said. Which is hilarious because the entire so basically he was told that he had to he he had to have been told that he has to go back and and clarify uh, his comment about vetting because I mean why else would he say it in the middle of a of a random ass interview? Mm-hmm. But the the original point that he said that he was trying to make was that he's not told what to say. <laughs> yeah the producer like we have a conference room at the end of the hall labeled fact checkers with a bunch of crash test dummies inside and that'll be all for nothing <laughs> if you correct this comment <laughs> uh, yeah that is probably what their fact check room is for <laughs> it's like you know it's like they take tours they give t- when people give uh, when they give tours of fox news you know, and that's our fact check room. Yeah, there's like it says like it's quiet like, hey. people working. <laughs> it's like, hey, uh, they don't appear to be moving at all. Nope, don't take a it's close concentration. look. Concentration, just concentration, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's how good they are. But anyway, congratulations so, to Sean Hannity for making an argument so ridiculous and self defeating that uh, he made it onto our show. So yeah. to a brand new d bag, congrats, Sean Hannity. So for our last segment, we just wanted to take a few minutes to talk about the National Defense Authorization Act, which is um, currently making its way through Congress um, and kind of Trump's opposition to it. So so basically what this act is, is an, a, an annual um, act that authorizes the uh, Department of Defense and Department of Energy to spend money on certain things. So later on, they'll get an actual budget appropriation of the real dollars to go spend. But this act is, you know, a set of laws that Congress passes um, to uh, specify what they can, you know, spend on the policies of the of the Department of Defense for the coming year. Um, and it's a big one, and it's uh, one of the few. Can, like regularly bipartisan bills that goes through. So this will be the 60th year that this that this bill is passed on a bipartisan basis, um, which is pretty impressive. But it also means it's a magnet for a bunch of other stuff. Like people love to yeah. add on a bunch of non-defense related things so they can pass laws um, in a reliable way because otherwise everything's too locked up to get anything done. Yeah, but for. So- uh, FY 2021, this bill authorizes uh, $740.5 billion um, in in spending for the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy. Um, $636 billion of that is for the Pentagon, um, and, and $635 billion uh, in total is like discretionary spending for the, for the Department of Defense. Um, so it is a huge comprehensive um defense bill that pretty much gets through every year and this year has a a pretty amazing amount of bipartisan support yeah there's definitely a few things in there that i don't personally like Mm. um first off i don't like the fact that it is albeit a slight increase in the military budget yeah it's only about Um, 2.5 billion dollars over last year's budget yeah um, the biggest thing that I don't like, and interestingly enough, I'm going to agree with Trump for a second. One of the things that Trump doesn't like 
is the bill bars uh, U.S. troop reductions in Afghanistan, Germany, and South Korea without significant justification. And this was kind of in direct response to the fact that uh, Donald Trump said, oh, we're going to bring troops out of Afghanistan mm -hmm. before I leave office. Now, an important point to make about that is the fact that his argument is not to pull troops completely out. It's troop reduction, which is not ending the wars. It is continuing them on. So I think that you can definitely legitimately criticize Donald Trump for not actually ending the war. But at least reduction is something. Yeah. I mean, it still authorizes $3.5 billion to fund the Afghanistan National Defense and Security Forces. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so and I, I, I just hate the wording of that. So you can't reduce the number of troops in Afghanistan without significant justification. And... God, the logic should be completely the opposite. Yeah, it should be like the, opposite. the burden of proof should be completely the opposite. Like there should be a clause that says, like, you have to pull all troops out of Afghanistan unless mm -hmm. there is significant justification for them staying there. I mean, Michael and I have talked about this on the pod before, but the issue is there's no mission accomplished. There's no end goal. Like when you try to ask these people, all right. When do we get out of Iraq and Afghanistan? When can we say mission accomplished? We're good. Let's go home. There's never an answer because they don't want there to be an answer because they do want endless war because war creates profit. They're allowed to be in that area in order to take advantage of the, uh, of the natural resources in the area. And also because it makes defense contractors rich mm -hmm. and the defense, uh, the, the defense contractors, and when I'm talking about defense contractors, I'm specifically talking about manufacturers. When they get more money, they use that money and they pour it into the election of more politicians who then authorize more money to give to the defense, the, the defense contractors. Like it's, it's, it's this cycle of corruption and God, it just pisses me off to no end that like, this is one of the things that Democrats, that some Democrats are taking a stand against Trump with. Yeah. Like, I, I, I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, I do want to say that, like, the bill does do some things that are good. Like, yeah. it allocates a billion dollars towards pandemic preparedness, um, which is great. Uh, it, it provides for a 3% a increase in salary for our service members, which... Yeah. I'm all for, um, yeah, it, all for it requires that the executive branch consult with Congress before invoking the insurrection act. The insurrection yeah. act empowers the president, um, to deploy U S military and federalized national guard troops within the United States in, in circumstances like civil disorder and, and things like that. So basically what Trump was doing in like Portland, um, yeah. which a, a legal check on the executive doing that. I'm all for that. Um, yeah. And, and it, uh, um, it includes a limited ban on the transfer of of certain um, of certain equipment and weapons, which is important because those are the things that end up being allocated to law enforcement. And so it requires law enforcement to be trained on on de-escalation um, and on citizens' constitutional rights, which is I think a win. 
Um, so there are things it does that are good, but notice like a lot of those things are not defense related. They're just the, the things that you kind of tack on to the fact that we really want to spend billions of dollars on defense. Yeah. And one thing that it also does, which, I mean, this is kind of symbolic, but Trump's made a big deal out of it. Um, and I would say that this is a positive thing. Uh, it does rename some military bases that were named after Confederate generals. Yeah. Again, it's a symbolic gesture, but I think it is a good symbolic gesture. Sure. And Trump's apparently not happy with that. But what's interesting is that the main reason why Trump is has been threatening to veto it, which it turns out that's probably going to be a moot point because this past Congress already with a veto-proof majority. Mm -hmm. So Congress could very easily override Trump's veto uh, if he did decide to veto. Um was uh, he wanted included a section that repeals section uh, 230. So uh, out of curiosity, Michael, um, can you explain uh, what section 230 is with regard to the military? Because I'm assuming because this is a military bill, um, he must be specifically wanting this section 230 uh, taken out because it has something to do with, I don't know, uh, uh, our defense, mm. our national defense, uh, with um, maybe, you know, budget allocation for the defense budget. So in, in what way does this have to do with uh, our national defense? So, Nathan, I, I got to fess up to you. Um, you know, I've done a fair amount of research on this, um, and, and Trump himself said that it was in the interest of national security. Um, hmm. But I cannot find any way that... Uh, that including uh, a a law that would get rid of Section 230 of the Communication Decency Act of 1996 would in any way be related to our national defense. Say what now? Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> so Trump, like out of nowhere, has decided that this is what he wants Congress to do is include a repeal for this section of the Communications Decency Act of 1996, um, which protects internet publishers like um, Facebook and Twitter and um, Yelp and YouTube. Uh, it protects them from liability for content posted by third parties. Um, so this protection is basically designed to encourage platforms to permit robust expression of ideas, um, to encourage free speech, uh, without the publishers um, and these hosting platforms being on the hook for what these people are posting, um, which, like, you think okay. would be unequivocally something that Republicans are supportive of, right? Like, free yeah, speech, I, I was... like, they want people to be able to communicate. They're all about trying to, like, like undo their perceived conservative bias or their, you know, anti-conservative bias of social media. You'd think, like, unmitigated, robust free speech would be the way to go. Yeah, I was I was about to say I I I mean I was already pretty confused when I found out this had nothing to do with defense, but now I'm really confused. Yeah. Because I thought that Trump has been spending all of his time bitching about how social media companies crack down on conservatives. Yeah. And now he's saying that social media companies should be held liable for the content that's put on their platform. You do realize that like that's going to blow back on you right yeah so like that's gonna yeah. blow back on 
you people that support you like I- so as far as i can tell <laughs> as far as anybody has been able to tell about why he's he's against this is <clears throat> another component of that section is that it also protects um companies from liability when they remove content that they view as um, obscene or abusive, as long as they, in good faith, think that it is like a violation of like their standards, it also require it also makes them not uh, civilly liable uh, for um, you know when they remove illegal content and it requires that they remove remove some illegal content like copyrighted material or um, you know like conspiracy to commit certain illegal acts and things like that, like sex trafficking. So I think that's the bit that he wants to remove is the protection for them actually being able to remove content when it is, um, when it violates their community standards, which we've talked about a fair amount. Like the fact that these platforms are um, like are removing content you know, in a way that is not fully transparent, it personally makes me a little bit worried. Like it feels like they have got a lot of power. And so, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's his argument. But the fact is that like, to your point, if you were to remove the liability protections from publishers, it would not have the effect of, of requiring them to foster open debate. It would have exactly the opposite effect. It would basically, if you remove civil liability protections from people who, um, you know, for, from, for these companies, from the content posted by third parties, that would basically require them to fully police all the content on their platforms in order to avoid liability. Like if you remove that protection, it basically means that they have to become like social newspapers where they are in full control of everything posted on their platform to avoid legal liability, which means that it would do the exact opposite thing from what, um, like these conservative groups are probably advocating for. So it seems more likely that it's Trump just trying to screw them over and trying to increase their risk than like he's trying to, to achieve any like real principled ends. Yeah. So I'm actually going to take a stand for the free speech of conservatives here. Absolutely. Like, we do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, we do that all the time. Yeah. So, you know, to any conservatives that might be listening, all uh, one of you, <laughs> if that, <laughs> um, look, if you care about your free speech on social media platforms, you, like, you got to be against this. Yeah. Because if social media companies are at the point where they can be held liable for the things that conservatives say. Yeah, their users post. Or that their users post, like conservatives and liberals, of course, then that means that, um, you know, things that can be interpreted as uh, threats, things that can be interpreted as, like, you know, as creating, uh, as defamation of character. Yeah. Like, that means that that content is going to have to be policed to a significant degree. Yeah. And it's going to affect, it's going to affect you. Sure. So look, I, I want you to have free speech. I have repeatedly said that I am against, uh, Facebook and Twitter banning people for 
saying stupid things. Again, mm -hmm. if we're talking about threats of violence, if we're talking about actual breaking, actually breaking the law, totally. then yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, they should, the person who did that should be held criminally liable. And the social media company does have a responsibility to, uh, to crack down on that. But if we're just talking about saying stupid things, saying things that are wrong, I mean, I guess we can have a conversation about whether or not they should be posting fact check articles, but even that, like, I'm not sure I want Mark Zuckerberg to be my ministry of truth, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but at the same time, I don't think that your content should be removed from Facebook. And, and a big reason why I believe that is number one, principle of free speech, but number two, we're already starting to see some of the unintended consequences of that with Parler. Like, there have been a lot of conservatives that have been switching over to Parler as a social media as a social media platform because they're tired of having their stuff taken down. Albeit, most of their stuff is probably wrong, factual, stupid, and you know contributing to the you know the downfall of America, but. That's now not they're going a crime. To <laughs> Which, yeah, that's not a crime. Yeah. And Parler is even more of a, media, a social media echo chamber. Yeah. I mean, to paraphrase Jeff Goldblum, stupidity finds a way. <laughs> and so now we will end this episode on a high note. So Nathan, what's your highlight this week? Oh, my highlight this week is the fact that right after we finish recording this pod, I am going to finally play Cyberpunk 2077. Nice. That is a that is a video game that I've been waiting for years to come out. It's made by CD Projekt Red, which is the same people that made the Witcher series, which I've also talked on this pod about how much I love that series. Um, I'm talking about the video game series, not the not the TV show, although the TV show is also awesome. Um and uh toss a coin to your witcher by the way mm -hmm. um and <laughs> <laughs> and yeah i am so excited to play this game i have been i've been watching uh review videos from people that have gotten it early and it looks so good it is it's my type of rpg mm. and i'm so excited that's awesome Sounds and fun. it's coming out right as I'm on break, so that works mm. very well. Yeah, you're just going to be able to pour all your free time into it. Your <laughs> eyes are going to be so bloodshot. Your, <laughs> your, your, your uh, blood is just going to be replaced with Code Red Mountain Dew. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what's your highlight, Michael? Uh, my highlight this week is that it is my wife's birthday this week. So oh. we are going to you know, be we, – we both took the day off on Friday, so we're going to take some time to – you know, just hang out and de-stress and relax. So I'm really looking make, forward to Make that. sure to tell her I said happy birthday. I absolutely will. Absolutely will. Yeah. And with that, thank you so much for listening to The Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week. Bye.